So, you know, over these, uh, these past 12 months, we've been companions on a journey, a spiritual journey, as we've traveled uh, through this Christian church year together following the life of our Lord Jesus from his birth in a stable uh, to walk in his footsteps through uh, the dusty hillsides of Galilee. Uh, we've watched as he opened blind eyes and made lame legs to walk again. Uh, we've listened in as he preached to the multitudes and we've heard his private conversations with his disciples. We've looked on in horror as he was crucified and then in awe as he rose from the dead. We witnessed his glorious ascension into heaven and we've celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the early church. Uh, and, and today, uh, Christ the King Sunday, the final Lord's Day of the church here, brings all of that to a crescendo. In a time to celebrate Christ as our past, present, and future sovereign over all creation, uh, and a time of reminding ourselves that no matter how many other forces may try to grab our attention or to gain our allegiance, uh, no matter what powers may rock our planet or sway our political fortunes, no matter what joys we may pursue or what sorrows may pummel us, regardless of any of that, Church Jesus Christ is still King. Uh, and that's actually where our lectionary reading picks up today with the proclamation of His reign, uh, the public posting of it actually, but uh, not in celebratory banners or accompanied by trumpet blasts, but in a simple wooden placard tacked over His head on the cross. And so I invite you to open your Bible so you can follow along with me. I'm going to be reading uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and we're going to be reading to you verses 26 to 43. So, uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us. Luke writes, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, and the womb that have not borne a child, and the breast that is never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a, a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. The criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowds watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine and they called out to him, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God 
even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has not done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how can we even begin to approach a scripture like that, a scripture that's so beautiful and so horrible at the same time? And so we ask, Father, only for the movement of your Holy Spirit that you would take out hearts of stone from any here that have them and replace them with a heart of flesh. We ask you to open by your word and by your Holy Spirit blinded eyes and deaf ears. We ask you, Father, to come alongside any now that don't know you, Lord, as they should, and we ask you to speak to them and be so very real to them in these next few moments. And we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So, you know, we know from the testimony of the Old Testament that the, the people of Israel had been promised a king, right? Uh, one anointed by the Almighty, a Messiah. And so for centuries, they looked for and expected to find one, uh, to find a man who would be a dynamic leader, a, a political savior, a guy who would give them the first century equivalent of a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. And they expected someone who looked like a king. They were looking for someone who would wield power, someone who commanded men and who demanded respect, someone who was strong enough to save them from the Persians or the Greeks or the Philistines or the Romans or whoever, really, whoever wanted to tangle with them so that every enemy would be brought to heel. And in his sovereign time, Almighty God, in fulfillment of his longstanding promise and in response to the prayers of his people, sent not just a mighty man, but he sent his only son, the God-man. The only trouble, humanly speaking, was Jesus wasn't what they expected a Messiah to look like. Uh, I mean, sure, he was spiritual enough. He, uh, he certainly seemed close to God. He appeared to be wise uh, he even displayed great power by healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead, feeding multitudes. So he was certainly uh, a holy man, a, a wonder worker, a prophet, y- yes. But the Messiah? Well, not so sure. Especially when the Romans arrested him. I mean, think about it. In their minds, they're asking themselves, Would the Messiah of God allow these pagan Gentiles to lay their hands on him and put him in chains? Uh, Could God's anointed king get himself falsely accused by coerced witnesses and be condemned by corrupt judges? Uh, Would the messenger of God allow himself to be mocked and nailed to a cross? It was just unthinkable. And so many among the crowd of onlookers just thought, no, it can't be this way. This, this is not how this Messiah thing is supposed to work. Uh, how is he going to kill the Romans and, and free the country and fix the economy and keep my pockets and my stomach full if he gets himself killed? How is this all going to benefit me? And so in anger and disappointment, the people lashed out, not against their real oppressors, they lashed out against Jesus, who only ever, as I just said, healed their sick and raised their dead and met their needs and fed their souls with the good news of the kingdom. And they look up and they say, hey, hey, uh, you up there, yeah, yeah, you, if, if you're so great, if you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself? 
And it wasn't just the crowd at the foot of the cross who confronted Jesus that day. There were two others, two people whose need for deliverance was more desperate than the folks who just shouted up insults from the ground. Uh, and, and we don't know a whole lot about these guys. All the Bible tells us about them is they were thieves. We don't know if they were young or old. Uh, we don't know what they stole. We don't know what circumstances drove them to commit their crime. All we know for sure is that they were both guilty and they were both paying the price for that crime, a serious price, and left to hang by their agonizing limbs until either their tortured lungs stopped breathing, they died from blood loss, or were finally finished off by impatient Roman soldiers. And so it's in the midst of this horrific scene that one of those criminals actually musters up the energy to turn his, his throbbing head and his bulging eyes toward Jesus to take up the taunt of the crowd. And he says, yeah, it, hey, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us too while you're at it. The other thief, well, he could see there was something different about Jesus. And he received the grace to recognize his king and by the power of the Holy Spirit to catch a glimpse of Christ's deity even in death. And not only that, he received the grace to recognize the deficiencies in himself and to admit that he deserved his punishment. And so he too fixed his tortured gaze on the Lord and said through dry throat and parched lips, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me when you're the king. And we've, we've kind of talked about this before, about this uh, idea. It's a bit challenging for us to kind of wrap our heads around the kind of idea of kingship being presented here because for the most part, uh, as citizens of a democratic republic, we no longer live in a world where kings and queens make much of a difference. I mean, sure, you, you might have watched the queen's funeral on TV. Um, some other monarchies do still exist, but today's royals are hardly an example of what monarchs historically have been. But to really understand what Christ as king means, we've got to understand the concept of the ideal monarchy and of the structures that it entails. Because, uh, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is a patriarchal kingdom. It is not a democracy. Uh, whether we like it uh, or whether we believe it or ever come to accept it or not, it just is. And all the power belongs to and flows from the Trinitarian union of our sovereign God manifested in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that, that's really the, the whole point of a day like Christ the King Sunday, to acknowledge God's power displayed in Christ's enthronement at his right hand. As the Apostle Paul tells us, he says, Now he, meaning Jesus, is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And that position of authority belongs to Christ alone, where he is now not only alive, but reigning. And we can't lose sight of that. I mean, yes, there is a sense in which we're, we're looking for the kingdom to come. We're looking for the culmination of all things. But for those of us who are in Christ, in a very real sense, you and I are living in that kingdom here and now. We are full-fledged citizens of it today. And I'll give you just a quick example. Um, I've shared this with some of you before, um, that I've had kind of a long-term interest in my family history. And I've got lots of really old documents and, and family papers. And one of them is this immigration certificate that's going to come up here on the screen. Uh, when my great-grandfather, Claire, emigrated here from Austria-Hungary in 1889, 
Uh, before he could come become a citizen, he had to sign this form. And I know you can't see it, but it's, the part is circled in red, and I'm going to read to you what it says. It says, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, power, potentate, or sovereignty of whom I have heretofore been a subject. Because, you see, until that document was executed, until he signed it, he was very literally the subject of another king. And a transfer of citizenship had to take place. Just like it needs to for us. In one of our other lectionary readings for today from Colossians, the Bible tells us that all who are in Christ have been officially relocated just like he was in the same kind of way. Colossians chapter 1 says, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and what? Transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Right? See, in Christ, we're now citizens of God's kingdom. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and from the evil of this world. And, and, and yes, we're technically still here, but this is no longer our home. We're, we're just aliens and strangers. We're just travelers uh, traveling here and just passing through on our way to a permanent home. And our allegiance now, church, is not... Uh, to any person or leader in this land or in this world, our allegiance is to our heavenly king. Which really is a perfect lesson for this last full week of November. Because Don't forget that's why the pilgrims, our, our congregational ancestors whose Thanksgiving feast we commemorate this Thursday. And for all non-congregationalists, you're welcome. Right? We invented Thanksgiving, so you're welcome. That's why our ancestors came to America in the first place. Right? They came here because they recognized a higher authority than any earthly monarch. They came to America so that nothing could keep them from being faithful to their heavenly king and from living as he commanded and not like the world because their lives and ours as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven make us so different. See, when the world says hate your enemies, our king says love your enemies. When the world says the one who dies with the most toys wins. Our king says instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When the world says, claw your way to the top and be number one, our king says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And that's because our Christ is a different kind of king. And he wields a different kind of absolute power. I'll give you another quick example. I'm sure you've heard this. Uh, in April of 1881, uh, an English historian by the name of Lord Acton wrote these lines. He said, uh, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Anybody know that line? Yeah, and, and history is full of cruel and self-serving rulers like that. But by contrast, our Christ loves and cares for his subjects. Right? His power is absolute, but it remains pure. Pure in his desire to nurture and to love us. Because, guys, Christ doesn't push us down. He lifts us up. He, he frees us from oppression. And he takes our heavy burdens on himself because unlike the rulers of this world, Christ's authority is made perfect in his servanthood. His power is made perfect in his weakness. And instead of maintaining a distance from his subjects, Jesus became one of us, making Christ uniquely qualified to be our king because he knows our human struggles personally. He's experienced our pain. He's experienced our frustrations and the trials of our faith, and he has even died our death while critics mocked his apparent lack of power and saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. 
And you know, that's actually another place where the differences between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God show themselves because Jesus didn't just leave us an arbitrary command to obey here. He provided the ultimate example for us to imitate. Because when the mob was merciless, Jesus remained merciful. Despite all the taunts and the jeers, he forgave. Even though they stripped him and beat him and hurled insults, he showed compassion. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have hurled insults and curses back at them, right? He could have called down the angelic host of heaven to slay them on the spot. But instead he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's another big difference between the two kingdoms. And you see that even in the story of the two thieves we started out with this morning. Remember, they were, were each facing death, a death they justly deserved. They were both incapable of saving themselves, and they both had an unexpected encounter with Jesus Christ, demonstrating for us that the greatness of God's power is able to save anyone, anywhere, anytime he chooses. No one who God intends to save is beyond his grace because no one is beyond his power to reach. And you may say to me, well, you know, Pastor, you, you have no idea what I've done in my life. You don't know what cross I'm carrying around. You don't know how great my sin is. You don't know how great my struggle is or how big my secrets are. And I say to you, that's okay, I don't need to know because what I do know is that no sin, no struggle, and no secret is beyond the greatness of God's power to grant you the gift of faith. Just like he did to one of those two thieves on the cross to whom Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise. And brothers and sisters, today, Christ the King Sunday 2022, Christ is still here. And through the reading of his holy word and the presentation of the gospel today, the Holy Spirit has presented us with the Son of God dying for the sins of the world and demonstrating that we need someone who can be our deliverer. We need someone stronger and holier than we are. We need someone who can manifest the power of the Almighty in our lives and in our world, because like those thieves, we are all under the sentence of death, and we need someone to deliver us from it. And the good news of the gospel is that God not only promised, but he provided just such a person in the person of King Jesus. As the Messiah who has the power to deliver us and can save us from sin and death. And you know, it's kind of funny if you think about it, the people in that first century crowd thought that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he couldn't prevent them from crucifying him, when ironically he is the Messiah exactly because he gave himself to die on that cross. Someone wrote of this, the kingship of Christ is the kingship of one who suffers for the sake of his subjects. His crown is the crown of thorns. His scepter is the reed of humility. His royal cloak is the purple robe of suffering. For a royal belt, he's bound with the bonds of servitude. His white, seamless garment of purity was stripped from him in public. His subjects mocked him. His servants deserted him. His own people for whom he suffered and died rejected him. His path is the way of the cross, and his greatest work is his crucifixion as a common criminal. And folks, that's the scandal of the cross. And that's what makes us so different and so strange to the outside world. As Paul put it to the Corinthians, he said, we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Right? This stuff doesn't make sense to anybody apart from the Spirit. 
See, to the Jews, it made no sense that a Messiah would die, much less be executed. For the Greeks, it seemed idiotic that someone would speak about killing a man in order to have him as their king. Talk like that violates all the laws of reason and logic. And for the Romans of his day, those power-mad Romans, they just turned up their nose at the whole thing. But brothers and sisters, the cross of Jesus Christ is the key to the Christian faith. And its message and our Messiah transcends every kingdom and every culture that this world has ever seen. One commentator writing uh, on the universality of Jesus' kingdom said this. this is a little bit of a long quote, but I want you to really track with me here. Listen to what I'm, I'm reading you. It says, every culture has its own high ideals. The greatest pursuit for the Hebrew people was light. Everything was idealized by light. They wrote, the Lord is my light and my salvation. This is the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. The people that sit in darkness have seen a great light. And so for the Hebrews... The ideal was light. For the Roman people, their ideal was glory, right? The glory of the Roman Empire, the glory of the Caesars, that Roman city that all roads led to, the city that wasn't built in a day. So for the Roman culture, the ideal was glory. The Greeks of Christ's day pursued knowledge. They pursued the ideal of the academy and uh, of the sophists and wisdom. And so every culture has its own ideals, but the writer goes on to say, we proclaim instead a prophet, priest, and king that transcends all of those, and of whom the Bible says, and listen to this, has enlightened our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the only hope for unity in our diversity. He's the only thing that makes it all make sense for all people, regardless of their background or their birth, or their station in life, because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior that the Bible says will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body, by the same power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. And so, church, we wait today as pilgrims in a foreign land. And, and this church is a colony, it's an embassy of Christ's holy reign until He comes again in glory. And until He does, we've been tasked with the privilege of sharing the gospel and of advancing the kingdom until the kingdom comes in all of its fullness and the whole world beholds our crucified but risen Lord, proclaimed wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.